Turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Song of Songs, chapter 2. Our text for our Thanksgiving sermon will be from verses 8 to 13. Excuse me. But I will begin by reading verse 1 that we might gain the context once again. So, Song of Songs, chapter 2, and verse 1. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of the living God. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. The voice of my beloved Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give us good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, come to the preaching of the word, and we pray, O Lord, that you would bless your servant who preaches by giving him the Holy Spirit of God who inspired these words to not only uh, have these words read, but that the minister would have uh, uh, the, the anointing power of the Holy Ghost to preach these words in a manner suitable of God. Oh, Father, your people have come here. They've come desiring to see Jesus. And yes, their sight is dim in terms of the light around us in this place. But may their sight of Jesus be strong in the preaching of the word, that the word of God would penetrate our hearts as we hear of the loveliness of Christ. And so, Father, they have, they have pleaded and prayed, Sir, we would see Jesus. So we ask that you would show them he that is altogether lovely. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we have enjoyed communion with our Lord at his table. We have feasted and supped on our beloved at the Lord's table. We are often greatly stirred up by his love afterwards. We've seen a tangible token of his love and his grace and his kindness and his compassion and his sacrifice for us, his bride. But too often, straight afterwards, what happens to us? Even though we were stirred up so greatly, almost straight away, a kind of spiritual slumber can come over us. We leave the table today, yes, but tomorrow 
We might find that we are drowsy, spiritually speaking. We have to be aware of it, and we have to take pains to keep our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, the very communion we enjoyed this morning. The fires of that continue to burn in our heart and in our soul to exercise the grace that we have received of the Lord and to enjoy our beloved day by day, not just at the communion table, but every moment of our life, and to follow him, to resolve not to go into our slumbers spiritually, but to hear the voice of Christ, the voice of our beloved in the Holy Scriptures, and then to come away with him, as he tells us to. And what is that? Is that not following after him? Is that not, uh, as he says, come after me, deny yourself, Uh, Take up your cross and follow me. And sometimes we think of that as a kind of a severe duty, don't we? But really, if we would understand this text, we would see that it is the Lord saying, no, put away those things that are unlovely and come and follow me. Come with me. Come and commune with me because he says, follow me. And that means that if you understand that he is your Lord, but also your beloved, your bridegroom, then following after Jesus is a sweet thing. And it's not a hard thing, but we must have that mentality here. And so our theme is to, out of this text, arise out of our spiritual slumber and come away with Jesus. We'll consider it under two heads. First is the bride's slumber, and second is the beloved's voice. First, the bride's slumber. As we regain our bearings, Just a reminder on what the Song of Songs is. As we return to it, uh, this superlative title, the Song of Songs, is in the first verse. And it's a, uh, it shows us to be the greatest song, right? It is the Song of Songs, just like our Lord Jesus is the greatest king. He is the King of Kings, right? And so the Song of Songs is a Hebrew superlative. It is the greatest song. It is the greatest love song. And it is then about the greatest love of all. Do you know what the greatest love of all is? It's the love of Christ for his bride. That's the greatest love. Not your own, I pray your marriage, if you're married, is is good and wonderful. But it's not the greatest love. The greatest love is that of Christ and his bride. And that's what we have to have the sense of. This song is foremost, and I say foremost, a portrayal of the love of Christ for his church. For this exquisite marriage in the text here is the great marriage of the Son of God to his bride, the church. Our earthly marriages then, right, are meant to be a reflection of the greatest marriage. And this is why this is also helpful for us to know as a, as a text for our own earthly marriages. But Ephesians 5 says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, speaking of marriage, and the two shall be one flesh. He says this is a great mystery. But what is he speaking of? I speak concerning what? Christ and the church. And how does the Bible end? Sometimes we forget these things, but these are important. The Bible ends with the great marriage, doesn't it, of Christ to his church. Revelation 21, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. What? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, this is the church's marriage to Jesus Christ. And that's why he says our earthly marriages end as we go into heaven. And so the Song of Songs shows us the heavenly marriage. And the more endeared we are to Christ, the more we understand why this book is here. And why, how does the, what's the, almost the last sentiment at the end of the Bible? The spirit and the who? 
and the bride say, come, right? You know, the more that we see the loveliness of Christ, the more that is our heart. The Spirit testifies to our hearts, and we as the bride of Christ say, come. And that's how John ends the book, right? Even so, come, Lord Jesus, before the benediction. Well, with that brief reminder, let's pick up where we left off earlier this chapter three months ago. Uh, In the first part of the chapter, and this is very interesting as we come to communion time, the bride desired to taste the sweetness of Christ's fruit. You remember that. You heard it as I read it. Uh, His fruit being his ordinances, right? She desired to long to take shelter under his shadow. And uh, And she says, I am sick of love, right? She is lovesick for her bridegroom. And he brought her into the banqueting house, the house of wine, where they enjoyed rich communion, one with another, lovesick. But where do we find her here in this portion of the same chapter? A kind of slumber has overtaken her. Twice, the Lord has to say, awake, arise, arise to her, from lovesick to sleeping. I think we kind of understand that. Christians. You know, one day we seem so lovesick for the Lord, maybe on a communion day like this, and the next day, maybe it's Monday, comes around, and suddenly we're spiritually slumbering. And Jesus comes to arouse her out of her slumber. Verses 10 and 13, arise my love. She's lethargic, even after this time of communion with her bridegroom. And this time that she found herself in was also called winter. This communicates a kind of deadness, a time of no fruitfulness, isn't it? That things don't grow in the winter, as you might know, boys and girls, at least not ordinarily. In my yard, weeds thrive in the winter, but not fruit, not fruit. So the slumber and the winter setting here communicates to us a bit of her condition. It's like winter, being unfruitful, and she has to be aroused out of her slumber. And how fitting it is then that we come to this as our Thanksgiving text after the communion service, because sometimes we can experience something rather mournful on Monday morning. You know, for maybe even the rest of this Lord's Day, we experience the afterglow of meeting with our Lord in the banqueting house, the house of wine. We leave encouraged, and the Lord has strengthened us. But soon after, we sort of enter a spiritual winter time, and we begin to sleep. And as we are asleep, Spiritually, we're like the bride here. We don't notice Christ is distant from us. And he must be the one. He must come to arouse us out of our slumber and call us back away to himself. And I'll just ask, have you ever felt lethargic spiritually? Especially after a time of great blessing and spiritual communion with the Lord. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what the bride is feeling here. What the bride has done, actually. And do you notice that time might even go by, just like the Lord Jesus here has to arouse her, that you don't even notice that Christ is far away. You don't even notice, you don't seem to care, really. It's not that maybe you don't even notice, it's just that you don't care. The bride is not alarmed that Christ is not by her side. Beloved, what all this tells us is that even in heightened times of spirituality, straight afterwards we can be like this. Hot for the Lord today and then tomorrow apathetic about the word of God, not interested in in prayer, last place we want to go. Uh, We'd be more interested in the things of this world. And it's almost like we just say, I just really don't want to deal with the Lord right now. And uh, that's, we see, we are alive so often, right? We're awake 
to the things of the world, and yet we slumber when it comes to the things of Christ. Or even in the crushing burdens day to day, maybe it's winter time for some of you. You can forget your Lord. Often in winter time, when our spirit seems chilled or it is hard for us, we're going under affliction, and we call that a time of winter, a coldness, a time of no spiritual fruit, we can actually retreat from the Lord completely and not care. It happens to many of us. We come to the table of the Lord, but then we retreat. Where do we retreat? Our sin, worldliness, our worries even, or our nominal religion. And so that you would be on guard against them. Here are four things that often put us in a spiritual stupor. And they are sin, worldliness, nominalism, and trials. Sin, worldliness, nominalism, and trials. First, sin. Isaiah 59.1, we must always remember these words. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have what? Hid his face from you that he will not hear. You see... Sin causes a separation between you and your Jesus. Your sins will hide his face from you. The problem is that in our sin, we do not often notice that he is hidden away from us, that he has gone away. Because why? We love our sin so much. And we don't even notice that our beloved Savior is far away. We have not the sense of Moses, of whom the Bible says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, Hebrews eleven twenty five through 26. Yeah, we don't have the sensibility of Moses, do we? Who said that, you know what? The fleeting pleasures of sin and all the riches of Egypt, they are nothing. I will even suffer the reproaches of Christ because I desire Christ that much. Willing to suffer hardship to have communion with Christ. And the problem is, we often enjoy, notice that it does call sin pleasurable, at least to us in our flesh, but they are oh so fleeting. Oh so fleeting, you have undoubtedly experienced this. You, you chase your sin, and it seems pleasurable in the moment. And then you come, if you are a child of God, to mourn over it and regret it afterwards. You repent, and you, 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 the problem is you don't say that, that communion with Christ is far better. You don't realize what your sin does. In our text, there is a separation here between the bride and her beloved. He's on the other side of the mountains. And when he approaches, he's behind their wall. There is distance between us and our beloved that is caused by our sin. And if you want to maintain the close communion you have enjoyed with the Lord, I trust at the table today, believer, don't play with the fleeting pleasures of sin. Don't play with them. They are going to cause separation between you and God. Make Moses' calculation your own. Let me enjoy Christ instead of sin. The more, the more I grow in the faith, and I trust this is you as well, the more that I do weep bitterly after I sin. Why? Is it because I fear that the Lord will not chasten me? And he very well might, and he's in his rights to do it. And it's all out of love. But it's not why the child of God mourns that, oh, the, the Lord might send his chastening hand upon me. No, not really, not even if it is unpleasant. It's because I see that sin has created separation between me and my God. And that wounds the child of God. It causes bitterness in their soul. You remember when Peter wept, right? When Jesus looked at him 
And there was that separation when he said, I don't know the man. That's what we do in our sin. We say to Jesus, I don't know the man. I don't know him. And there is that distance. And then the true child of God, when, when Jesus comes and he looks at us and sends his spirit into our heart, we weep that this separation has come between us and our Lord. You do not play with sin. You must, you must repent of it swiftly. And you must purpose to mortify it in your hearts, all of you. Where, what is the heart meant to be? It is meant to be Christ's dwelling place. It is not meant to be the place where sin dwells. If sin is dwelling in your heart, Christ is far away from you. Sin causes separation, but Christ is to dwell in your heart richly, even as psalm singers know that text. A second matter that leads to distance from Christ is worldliness. Because to love the world is contention with Christ. James 4.4, friendship of the world is what? Enmity with God. Do you not think that this causes then a separation between you and God? Will Christ be near the saint who is so friendly with the world and the world's ways? In fact, so interesting, do you recall? You know, I, I quoted a section of James 4.4, but do you recall what James calls Christians who are friends with the world? Adulterers and adulteresses. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. To pursue worldliness, to pursue the affections of the world, like Lot's wife. If our affections are stayed on the world like Lot's wife, we will find that God is far away from us. Whether our affections are on the men of this world, the systems of this world, the things of this world, the pleasures of this world. If that's where our affections are, maybe it's even the glory that comes out of the world. The prestige the world has to offer, especially as, as it causes you to turn away from Christ's ways just to have its prestige. If you find your affections there, beloved, instead of on the Lord, Christ will be so distant from you. Why, beloved, come to the table of the Lord this morning and then run uh, to the pig slop, so to speak, of the world so quickly? That would cause a great separation between you and God. Third, nominalism in religion. You know, we can often go through the motions of spirituality and religion in our day-to-day -day life. We do not enjoy vital communion with the Lord, and we degenerate into a kind of religion, uh, which is really no true religion at all, which just goes through the motions. You know, maybe a, a touch point here would be for husbands and wives, and I think anybody who's been in any kind of relationship probably can, can refer to this. Um, it is so easy to have a nominal relationship as husband and wife, can't it? You can just kind of show up, husband, in the door at night and say, I love you to your wife, and then head away from her, and... Uh, you know, you say, I provide for my wife and my family, and, and the wife says, I tend to the home and care for the children. But there's a kind of cool, passive nature to the whole marriage. And there's a lukewarmness in the relationship. It's the same, though. It can be the same between us and the Lord. Even if you're constant in your daily readings and your prayers, you can do it out of mere duty, rather than sheer delight to be with the Lord. And that's what he wants, isn't it? We can, we can go about all of our duties to the Lord, but be distant from Him. You know, it is a very dutiful church, and I thought on this, 
the church at Ephesus that the Lord chastened with the grievous words, thou hast left thy first love. This was a church full of duty to the Lord. Revelation 2.4. Uh, it's fascinating, I think, for a Reformed church like ours because they were very much like us. What did they do? They contended for the faith against the Nicolaitans, and the Lord commends them for that. He says, good, I have something against them too. And so it's good that you contend against error. He said, thou hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Sounds good. We might actually say, well, we're doing what we ought to do, right? But what does he say next? Nevertheless, I have something against thee. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. What happened? They forgot all about the object of their faith and communion with the Lord Jesus. They were spiritually asleep, though very active, thinking all their religious activity and their contention for the faith once delivered all for the saints was a substitute for evangelical religion in the heart. Don't be so pleased, even if you labor for the Lord but I've left your first love. I wonder how many ministers and elders the Lord has said, yes, you're very busy, but you have left your first love. Even by loving, right, you can love to contend for the faith above the Lord who gave you newness of life and gave himself for you. And I say, enjoy your time with the Lord above all. And uh, I preach again for our, our time and place here Today, men and women even love their social media time so much and contentions for the Lord there, yet have not been in meaningful communion with him in prayer or praise the entire day. What a strange thing that is, to fight and contend for the Lord online or wherever, but have not prayed that day or enjoyed fellowship with God. What do you think Jesus is saying? But nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. That's a nominal religion. Fourth, trials can put you in a time of spiritual doldrums, so to speak. In our trials, we can often retreat from the Lord. And that's a terrible thing. Whether those are temptations, those are trials too, or persecutions or difficult providences, hard providences. What happens to us? What happens in our flesh? We focus on the trial. We focus on our difficulty. We are prone to say, woe is me. I have never been, uh, nobody has ever understood this. Uh, You know, you can kind of see that in in a bit of Job at times. Um, We often, though, retreat from the Lord in that. We get into the spiritual fetal position, so to speak. We curl up into a ball and we shut out the Lord. And we forget that in our trials, our affections are actually meant to go outward. Not just in trials, but always our affections are meant to go outward. If our affections are stayed on he who is steadfast, immovable, perfect love, perfect uh, righteousness, and always for his people, then if our affections are stayed on him, then we would not suffer so greatly. You know, when Peter encouraged believers facing trials, where did he point them? That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's your trial, and your faith ought to be ought to be precious to you. But where does he go next? Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. First Peter one seven through eight. Do you understand, believer? 
He points us to our love of Jesus in our trials, reminding you what? Whom having not seen, ye love. You see that all of this ties together. Rather than in in your spiritual winter, then you're not to just go and slumber, but you are to look to your beloved with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Believer, when you're tempted in these four ways to retreat from the Lord, return your remembrance back to this morning and the table of the Lord as you communed, or whenever the last time as you communed. You remember, what, what, why do we use wine in the Lord's Supper? It warms us, doesn't it? It warms our heart. It warms our soul. It is meant to cheer our heart. That's what God says in the Bible. And so remember how the wine warmed you and how that warmth portrays the warmth of Christ's love for you. And it is an inward love that you are to have to the Savior. That's why you ingest Christ, so to speak. Pray he would apply the sacrament to you afresh when you're feeling drawn to those things that tend to put you in a spiritual stupor. Having seen Christ, let me ask the question, do you want to be like those in Romans 11.8? Those that have the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. Oh, that was us before our conversion to have that spirit of slumber. What a dreadful thing to return to, beloved, if you have seen Christ and you have heard his voice. Some of you have been converted not too long ago, and you know what that spirit of slumber is like, what it is to be asleep to God. Oh, do you want to go back there? I trust you don't. But if you are his, and you are feeling grieved at the distance between you and him, If you suddenly realize today, maybe now in the preaching of the word, or maybe even at the table, you realize that the Lord has seemed far and gone away, you must seek him earnestly. You're to seek him earnestly, watch and wait on the Lord, and he will return to you. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Oh, child of God, what you are meant to do is to seek him out more fervently. If you have the spiritual sense that he is far from you and it grieves you today, that is the Lord's work. Where does that grief come from? It doesn't come on those who truly have the spirit of slumber. They don't care. But if you are grieved that the Lord seems far away, that is his work. You're going to see it is his preparation for you to receive him afresh. And so you must go to him. You see, it's so interesting when the Lord arouses the bride in our text. If you notice the geography, he is still far and distant from her. He calls her from far away from the other side of the mountains. That's where he awakes and arouses her from. But she still cannot see him. He still isn't very close to her. But his voice captures her. As Job said in Job 23, 8 through 10, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him, can't see him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. When you can't find the Lord, and, and, he, and he seems so distant, but, but that you hear his voice, that is the Lord. He knows my way. He knows my heart. And he knows how to overcome the sluggishness there. What does she do when she hears his voice? She says, The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. You know, what a picture is. We'll get to the voice of Christ in a moment. 
But there is a wonderful picture here. Whatever that distance is between him and her, it is effortless for him to traverse, isn't it? He cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills, mountains that other men could not traverse. He simply leaps over. This is how our Lord was prophesied of in the gospel. In Isaiah 40, verses 4 through 5, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Friends, what mountains has the Lord already toppled in order to come to you? All of you who have known the Lord have had the greatest obstacle of all removed, which is your own self, your own sin nature, your own death to God. You know, your spirit is dead to God. Uh, Naturally, he has come over all of that. He has found you in some of the strangest places, as I hear about conversion stories, some of the strangest places, some of the mountains you would never imagine anybody could resolve. He has come and leaped over to find you. He did what is impossible for men and angels to do to save us from our sin. And so if he has done that, how will he not come to us in the lesser obstacles day by day? He has overcome through the cross and the contradiction of sinners. What great mountains that is. Those are. Has he not? How will he not leap over our besetting sin, our worldliness, our despondency to come and revive our souls again? That is the Christian's hope in persevering. That the Lord comes. Not that they go on a great journey to go find the Lord, but that he comes and he who never ever will forsake them, even in spiritual desertion, when the dawn arises, he will return skipping over the hills. In every case, believer, when the time comes and it comes to all of us, when you mourn distance from the Lord, have faith. He will overcome and he will overshadow any of the obstacles that cause distance between you and him. You must, in the meantime, seek him. Uh, There was, uh, I was reminded of what uh, had transpired about a year ago. A year ago, a brother in Israel, uh, Israel, the country, uh, contacted me, and he had been a terrible, terrible backslider. He had committed some great heinous sins uh, a few years ago, but had repented of them. But he told me, The Lord still seems so distant. Pastor, it's not like it was before. We enjoyed such sweet communion one to another. And he started to wonder, am I a castaway? Am I a castaway? And I encouraged him that being a repentant man and actually concerned about such things shows that he is no castaway. But he must continue to fervently seek the Lord that he must watch for him and watch for his coming. He must be faithful day by day as the watchman looking for the Lord coming upon the mountains to be constant in faith and, and obedience and repentance. But wait, as the psalm says, wait upon the Lord. And for months and months, this was, he would call me and I would give him that same constant repeated encouragement. And I said, I have really nothing else to give you. But it was so glorious. One day, out of the blue, he called again. I wasn't there. He left a voicemail. And the man was literally singing, Hallelujah, the Lord has come. The joy of the Lord and the laughter and the tears, his sweet Jesus had returned. He doubted it would ever happen. But the Lord's word was true and sure. 
and his Jesus came once again and met him. Jesus never left him nor forsook him, but had only withdrawn. Why? So that this man would earnestly seek his beloved. He would miss the communion. It is, a, it is a proper thing to be separated from the Lord after a grievous sin. That you would miss communion that you once had. That you would say, yes, the, the pleasures of sin are fleeting and so hollow and disgusting. But I miss Jesus. He, why did the Lord do it? So he would never return to that sin that caused separation with his Lord. I had counseled him to pray without ceasing, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And the Lord in his timing had done so, as he promises to do. He will surely do it for you, believer, in times of distance. Wait on the Lord. I say, wait on the Lord. He will come to you and you will say one day, the voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. In the meantime, Put away what snatches your affections from him. He will come to you. Why? (laughs) Why does he not call you his love and his fair one? He will come. And so let's turn to our second heading, the beloved's voice. Well, will you note what the very first token of her beloved's presence was? And I think this is so interesting. It is his voice. Her first perception of him is the word of God as it was for all of us, isn't it? Uh, Verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh. Right? When she hears the voice of God, when she hears the voice of Christ, behold, he cometh. That is what the Spirit testifies to those who are the children of God who hear his voice for the first time. It's the voice of Christ in the scripture that is in view here. And again, if you were converted later in life, I trust you remember this very well. When the Holy Spirit first came to you, you heard Christ's voice in the scriptures. You may not have said it, but did you not have the sentiment in your heart, the voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, and he cometh for me. Consider Ephesians 5.14. Wherefore he saith, awake thou that what? Sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. This is what happens when we hear the word of God and we are unconverted, when we are dead in our sins and trespasses. He says, awake, thou that sleepest, arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. And we hear, boys and girls, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But it's not just for conversion. Afterwards, the word is meant to arouse us out of our slumber. Not just from spiritual death, which happens only once, mind you. But he revives us by his word from our snoozing, from our lethargic spirituality. The word and the word preached is meant to revive our souls and to remove the dullness and the distance between us and the Savior. It is meant to remove our nominalism. It is meant to remove the worldliness. It is meant to remove the sinfulness. And it happens especially when you say and you perceive when the word of God comes What? How often have you done it? The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh. In addition to the voice of my Lord and my God, this is the voice of my beloved. What you are to do is you are to have, and ask yourself this, do I have a great affection for the word of God? Is it not just the scriptures, and that's more than important enough, 
but is are the scriptures the voice of my beloved? Do I have affection for it? As some have said, and not impiously, it is a love letter from God to his people. How can it not be? Does it not speak wondrous things? It speaks, yes, of the evils of our heart, as you heard this morning, but does that not magnify the love of God in it? As we have heard this morning, even from Romans 8.32, it, it magnifies our evil, right? magnifies the love of a father who spared not his own son. It, it shows us a gracious Savior who loves us and gave himself for us. A Holy Spirit shed abroad into our hearts the very love of God by the word of God. And so I would say, do not neglect, my beloved brethren, this life-giving, reviving word. As Job did, esteem the words of his mouth more than your necessary food. If you are in Christ, it is the voice of your bridegroom to you. How often you think of those who court, especially from a long distance. You know, these days the emails or the instant messages come quickly. But think of the old days when the letter arrives in the mail and how eagerly we would devour it. That's what the word of God is meant to be to you. What are you supposed to do when you hear Christ speak in it? What did John the Baptist what did John the Baptist say when he heard Christ's voice? He said in John 3.29 that he rejoiceth greatly because of who? The bridegroom's voice. You see that joy that came upon John the Baptist? I hear the voice of the bridegroom and I rejoice. And when you are in the spirit and you are spiritually exercised, when the Holy Spirit brings the word into your soul, it becomes not just the word of God, but the voice of your bridegroom. It becomes not just words on the printed page, but you must esteem these words as the word of your bridegroom. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 103. And so when you come to the word of God, you come with desire, you come with longing for Jesus, that uh, he approaches us, he comes to us by his word. And um, as your desire is kindled for him, what we have to also remember and see is how you, the believer, are his own desire. What? Let's see, the bride calls Christ, my beloved, but what does Christ call you? Maybe we ought to imprint this on our memories. My love, my fair one. If he twice told her to arise, twice he says it to her as well. Verse 10 and verse 13. My love, my fair one. He has made you fair in his eyes and in God's eyes. He has cleansed you of all unrighteousness with his own blood. He has washed you with the water of the what? The word. Right? His own voice that calls out to you is a washing word. When he says to you, my beloved, he is washing you by his word. And he has made you fair and lovely in his sight. But even before he did that cleansing, you heard this morning, you were his love, eternally so. But in time, he has made you fair. He has always seen you as the apple of his eye. And even when you slumber and rejoice in this believer, when you have put distance between you and the bridegroom, he still calls her what? My love, my fair one. Right? Again, we heard it this morning in Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of God? which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even ourselves, not even our sin. 
can separate us from his love. You know that your sin can't separate you from his love if you're truly his. That is why he went to the cross, so that sin could not separate you from his love. He calls you, my love, my fair one, and so he will never forsake you utterly. He is eternally wed to you. He says, I hate divorce. There is no bill of divorcement. In Psalm 119, verse 8, we pray, Oh, forsake me not utterly. And what do we do? We pray in faith, knowing he never will. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we pray that prayer in light of that. And what I cannot get past is how tender he is to us, even in our stupor. Arise, my love, my fair one. How his ministrations towards us are filled with love and kindnesses. And those are meant to draw you to himself, meant to have you seek him day by day. He's not a cruel husband. He is very kind and tender. And do you see this in the scripture? He has called you out by name. And this is a glorious thing. He doesn't call everyone in this saving way, but you who believe. He has called you specifically in the word of God, my love. What does John 10.3 say? We need a reminder. The sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Beloved of God, when he says, my beloved, he has called you specifically. He has called you specifically. What a thing that is. Not a general love to every person, though he has a kind of love for all people. But there is a specific discriminating love to you, especially believer. He has called his own sheep by name. You know, it's a good habit to put your own names into texts like these. I told you that this morning as we came to the Lord's Supper. You need to personalize them. He says to me, then I will put my name here and I will leave the exercise to you. Arise, Ram, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. And he says the same to all of you in the word of God. Whatever your name is, he is calling you to arouse from slumber. And notice also that she hears his voice afar off, even before he comes and meets her. And I think this is an important part of the text. He will travel over the mountains to come to her. But then when he approaches, he is on the other side of their wall. That's what you read. It's like he's on the other side over there. Then he is. Uh, then we see him through the lattice. We read in the text, and then he peers into the window. She just at first though hears his voice. Then as he draws closer, she starts to see more of her savior. And so don't be disturbed by that, beloved. If you you sense this distance between the Lord, but you are hearing his voice in the scripture, he will draw closer and closer. And closer, you may not have him immediately by the bedside straight away. And what I will say, even in this life, you will see him as only through a lattice. You are not going to see him directly, right? Even in the Lord's Supper today, you saw him as through a glass darkly, as though through a lattice. First Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Set your expectations, beloved. Even the best sight that the saint has had of Christ, this side of glory, is nothing compared to how we will see him one day. There's always going to be a yearning. Christ is not as clear to me as I would like. 
But if you hear his voice and you get the glimpses of him that you ought to get in the ordinances and, and your love is set upon him, the, the hope you have is one day I will see this Jesus face to face. So close. One day I shall know Jesus. And I love that verse because it says, I, I know in part, but then uh, shall I know even also as I am known. And how am I known? By him completely and utterly. You know, as a token of that, though, the important thing is even not so much that our sight is always so clear of Jesus, but that his sight is very clear of us. He looks through the window, doesn't he? And he sees her. He comes for her. His eye is ever upon us. He never takes his eyes off of us. He is God. And so he can observe all of you intimately and perfectly in every moment and all of us, all the elect, as though, and this is the wonderful thing, as though in his mind and heart, you are the only one, each of you to him. It's interesting that the Lord is so great and wonderful that he essentially gives undivided attention to us all because his attention can't be divided, so to speak. He gives perfect, complete attention on all of us, though the elect are innumerable. Even when he is distant from you, his eye is ever upon you. In Luke 12, he reminded us, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Not one of them is forgotten. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. What does he say? What is the use? Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not. You might feel distance, but you are not forgotten. Fear not by your bridegroom. His eye is on you. As you heard last week in the 139th Psalm, thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. And what does he say to her when he draws near? Verse 10 through 12. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Arise, my love, my fair one, and what? Stay in bed? No, come away. Come away with me. Come away with me. Leave the world behind. Leave your sin behind you. Come away with who? With me. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and what? They follow me. You, you say, behold the voice of my beloved and it's meant to be, a, so to speak, a figure of speech, a siren call that you cannot help but follow. That is what following the voice of Jesus in the word is, friends. And if you would see it that way, how sweet every commandment of God becomes. It is not just a command. It is Jesus telling me in the command, come away with me. We sang in the 23rd Psalm, my soul he doth restore again, and me to walk doth make within the paths of righteousness, even for his own name's sake. Do you hear when he revives our soul, right, as he rouses it from slumber, what does he cause us to do? To come away with him. To walk within paths of righteousness, even for his own name's sake. Have you not heard? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, 3. Have you not understood that in view of, if you love me, keep my commandments? 
For the love of Christ, he says, arise out of your slumber and keep his word. It's not grievous to do so, but Jesus saying, come away with me. And he is saying to you now, with the communion service this morning, warming your heart, the winter has gone. Springtime has come. And he says, come away with me, beloved. The time to arise has come, sleeper. The time for further communion is here now. He says, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds has come. And the voice of the turtle is heard. And listen to this. In our land. In our land. It is the time for fruitfulness and for the believing soul to have interchanges with Christ. That you would bear much fruit for him. That is a purpose of the supper. Not that you leave Christ at the table, right? Some people have this erroneous view, and that's why they feel like they have to have it more often than maybe uh, advisory. But you don't leave Christ at the table when you leave the table. You leave with further communion with him. Notice how beautifully, and I, I made you note this, how beautifully he said, our land. It's a shared land with the bridegroom. The meek shall inherit the earth, he said. And we are heirs of God in Christ, that all that is his is ours, right? That's the marriage bond as well. The king will share all that is his, his land included, with you, his queen. You know, in the present world, the church is called Emmanuel's land. Isaiah 8, 8, and he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. This is Emmanuel's land, he says. It is our land. In the church, through her ordinances and the communion of saints, you are going to bear fruit. The winter has gone, and you are to rejoice with your beloved in the things of God. And so the exhortation is rather simple out of the text. Let us go with Emmanuel. Let us be aroused from our spiritual slumber. Let us go as often as we can to him. Let our souls be ravished with him. Let us come away from the world and its fatigue. Are you not yet fatigued with the world, believer? Let us go away. Let us come away with him in the secret place and in family and corporate worship. Let us come away with him in the communion of the saints as we have today. This is his body. Let us come away with him on the Sabbath day, a honeymoon with Jesus. Let us come away with him in service and in good works because Christ is at work in them. He has prepared them for us from before the foundation of the world. Let us come away with him fighting the fight of faith against our corruption and sin. And the thing is, friends, if you only knew who was calling, if you only knew who your beloved was, if you would only say that my Jesus is chiefest among 10,000, what a thing you would say that he calls me a sinner, his fair one, and wants and desires me to commune with him and come away with him. If some great person said, I want you, and I want you to come away with me, would you not be flattered? Here is the God of heaven calling you to come away with him. And what do we say? I just don't care. Or should you not say, what a thing it is my God wants me to come away with him. Saints, if you only knew how, who was calling you, how you would run into his arms and go wherever he wanted you to go away with him. You know, we'll close with these thoughts. The Lord, you have to believe this from communion to communion, day by day. 
He is weaning you off of the world, and he is preparing you for glory, saints. Bit by bit, he says, enjoy a competent portion of the good things of this life. Yes, you must work. You can enjoy lawful recreations. But where is your satisfaction to be more and more every day as he prepares for glory? You for glory. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. This is to be your expression. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What of Psalm 42? As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Think of what a glorious thing it will be. You know, the winter is never truly finished in this life, right? But what a glorious thing it will be when winter is finally finished and passed away. When we no longer see Christ as though in a glass darkly, but face to face. What will it be like? Rich feasting with Christ in heaven as a foretaste this morning and with his people in deep communion and joy, a place of laughter, a place of joy, pleasures forevermore at God's right hand, a place where there are no tears. But the Lord brings something of the life to come into our present experience, even here and today, friends. Which is why he says your citizenship is in heaven and you are to walk in a heavenly way. And when revival comes, there will be a heavenly frame that comes upon us. When he revives our soul, he revives our people, a heavenly frame will come on us. What do you see in the book of Acts after Pentecost? Pentecost, Pentecost comes. A great revival comes on the land. Acts 2, 46-47. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. That is a foretaste of heaven. And that is exactly what happens when the Lord sends his spirit into our soul. What do I want to do? I want to praise the Lord day by day and commune with his people. That is as close to heaven as we will get on earth. But that is what Christ is calling us to come away to. Communion with him and his body. And when spiritual men and women approach the end of their days, this is where their affections are stayed. And where they are longing for. Communion with the Lord. And they know The final time will come, as it will come for all of you, believer. One day, on your last day, you will hear the Lord speak finally to you. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. And he will draw you into heaven itself. He says, come away, your winter is finally finished. That's what we anticipate, and you must long for that, friends. If you long for that, everything will work backwards into your life, and you will long for more of that today. As you might know, at the end of his days, Samuel Rutherford was charged with treason. In many ways, it was a winter in his life, but before the magistrate came for him, he passed into glory. Christ came leaping over the mountains for him. His Savior drew near and called him, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. What were his last words? There is none like Christ. I feel, I feel, I believe, I joy, I rejoice, I feed on manna. My eyes shall see my Redeemer, and I shall be ever with him. And what would you more want? I have been a sinful man, but I stand at the best pass that uh, that over a man did. Christ is mine, and I am his. Glory, glory to my Creator and Redeemer forever. Glory shines in Emmanuel's land. Oh, for arms to embrace him. Oh, for a well-tuned harp.
his winter ended and his springtime came. Again, the winter of this life will end for you all very soon, beloved. Again, I've told you this many times. The more I hear that my life is but a vapor, the more I rejoice. Because the winter will end and you will be in that place where glory shines forever, as he said, in Emmanuel's land. And Christ calls that our land, a place prepared for him and his bride to enjoy each other forever. A place where it is always springtime and never winter. You must live in view of that for the rest of your life and follow Jesus today. Come away with him. Arise. You are his love. And go away with Jesus. Amen. Let us arise and seek Christ in prayer now. Oh, our Father in heaven, what it will be like to be with our Jesus day by day in perfect communion with him. Let us not be a people who long for that, but not long for daily communion with him through the means of grace by faith and love. Help us, Father, to find sin to be like ash to us. Help us, Father, to make this present world that is passing away as dung. Help us, Father, to put away nominalism in our religion and our faith. Help us to never leave our first love. And for any here who have never seen the beauty of Christ before, would you give to them saving faith that maybe this was the day where they have perceived the voice of my beloved. He comes for me over the mountain of my sin and the damnation that I deserve, the wrath of God, and he has come to me by showing himself as though crucified among us. O oh God, would you help us all revel in and love our dear Savior. Help us to put aside our spiritual slumber as we have arisen from the Lord's table, and may we enjoy sweet communion with him. May this be springtime for our souls. We ask for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.